Hello and welcome to BSI and to today's webinar, How Does a Progressive Health and Safety Culture Build Resilience? Welcome, uh, welcome to you all and thank you for joining us here today. My name is Charlotte Brody, I'm the Global Head of Marketing for the Built Environment at BSI and I'm delighted to be joined by Kate Field, our Global Head of Health, Safety and Wellbeing. And with a health and safety career spanning two decades, Kate started her career first as a regulatory inspector and then moved into policy, where she led initiatives to tackle workplace health risks. Kate has several years of consultancy experience in securing, developing and delivering health and safety programmes for a number of international clients. And she's authored regulatory and technical guidance, written articles for a range of publications. And I'm delighted that she's our global keynote speaker and presenter. So it's great to welcome you, Kate, and I'm really looking forward to today's session. So moving on. Our purpose is inspiring trust for a more resilient world. We help to shape and guide innovation through improving and standardizing business processes, products and services to enable advancement. We're independent and we're free from any outside influence as all profit is reinvested into BSI to help us continue to support further change. And we work constantly to serve industry and strive to find new ways and solutions that enable organizations to survive, stabilize, rebuild, and be resilient. Moving on, I'd like to firstly quickly recap on our focus areas and, uh, and how these relate to the structure of the built environment. And this slide captures our mission, and you can see a simple graphic showing how we support, support clients across the entire breadth of the built environment asset lifecycle. And we are focusing on four key areas where clients may be facing challenges and where we can help. Digital transformation, regulatory and health and safety wellbeing services, sustainability and supply chain and procurement. So I'd now like to welcome Kate uh, and we'll begin um, our, our session. Lovely. Thank you, Charlotte. Um, and welcome to everybody who's joining us today. We've got a, a lovely turnout, so thank you very much. Um, so in today's session, there are two key areas that we're going to be covering. We're going to look at organisational resilience um, and the and the kind of, if you like, the building blocks that, that make up that um, resilience. Um, and then we'll explore what a positive culture means um, and how those two elements um, interact with each other. And all being well, there will be the opportunity for some um, questions and answers at the end of the session. So um, I really would encourage you to submit any questions that you do have um, so that we have the opportunity to, to pick those up at, at, at the end. Um, so we're going to, as I say, start um, by looking at um, resilience. Um, but before we get into the detail, um, we'd like some, some input from you. Um, so it's a bit of audience participation um, and our first poll, and I'm going to hand back to Charlotte briefly um, to uh, explain the poll and, and what we'd like from you, please. Thank you, Kate. So uh, on a scale of one to five, what we would really like to know is where you rate your organisation's resilience. Um, and the scale that you can choose from is essentially one where um, you believe your organisation is not resilient and five where you're at the top end um, and you believe your organisation is highly resilient and we've been running um, these through other webinars today and had some really interesting results so I'm hoping that uh, we'll have um, some similar insight from people uh, taking part um, and really looking forward to seeing what people have to say about it. It's a topic that we're very keen on at BSI and you'll hear a lot more about it um, as, uh, as we move further into today's presentation. Um, I should also say that we have uh, a number of handouts for people who joined us today. You'll find those also on the right hand side of your screen. Um, please do download them. Um, essentially they both look at ISO 45001 which is the international standard for health, safety and well-being. Um, and please do uh, grab a copy, share them with colleagues or other interested parties. Um, we'd love for other people to, uh, to benefit from them too. So 
thank you to everybody for taking part. I think um, we'll now uh, take a look at those results. Um, and I can see that uh, no one has said that they are not resilient, um, but the majority of people at 43% have placed themselves right in the middle um, at number three, uh, followed by uh, number four, where 37% have said that they uh, are you know, at the top end. And then right at the top, we've got 10% of our audience today have said that uh, you are or your organization is resilient. So thank you very much for that. Really interesting results. Um, and I'll now hand back to Kate. Lovely. Thank you, Charlotte. And and thank you for everyone for, for taking part. That That's really, yeah, really interesting. I mean, I think obviously uh, resilience is something that's been tested um, very much at the moment. So it's really interesting to see how you are feeling your organisations um, have performed given, given the need for resilience in the current uh, COVID-19 uh, situation. So why is resilience so important? Well, I think it's important it's important to understand that there, there's been a mind shift actually in, in terms of looking at organisational resi resilience. And there often is a shift in attitudes and behaviours um, and patterns of demands associated with, with major, major disruption. Um, and we have seen that, I think, um, you know, really brought to the to the fore um, in terms of the current situation with the pandemic. Um, and organisations need to, uh, discern, adapt and shape to the, the emerging reality of kind of the, the, the new situation. But I think, you know, one of the things that's interesting at, at the moment is that we don't actually know what the, the, the new will be. We're still in kind of um, the next reality, the next phase, as opposed to the new phase. Um, and that's likely to continue for, for some time. But already we can see that there is this, this shift that is already happening. And as part of that, many organisations will be looking to rebalance their priorities in, in the coming months. And it's, it's this move, this pivot from crisis management um, through to a more innovative and agile one. So this move from a very transitory, just kind of getting things done and trying to almost survive on a day-to-day -day basis and work out what's needed to actually looking at the, the opportunities coming uh, you know, that may be available and looking at a much more transformational approach. But one of the things that is, is clear uh, is that with this disruption, with the COVID-19 pandemic, there has been this shift change in terms of where um, resilience is seen in terms of the importance within an organisation. And it's, it's, it's raised up the scale significantly. And now resilience is, is seen as uh, as important as, the, you know, the overarching strategy for the organisation, as, you know, the cost and efficiency drivers that all organisations have. You know, resilience is, is now on a par with each of those. And I think that's important to understand. So we could keep talking about organisational resilience, but actually, what is it? So BSI did some work back in 2014 um, to, to develop a framework um, on, on what organisational resilience looked like. So it brought together um, a panel of experts to develop that. And they, they came up with this definition of organisational resilience. And it's the ability of an organisation to anticipate, prepare for, respond and adapt to incremental and sudden disruption in order to survive and prosper. So I think it's useful to, to look at that and break it down um, into its elements. So what is a, as an organisation? Well, an organisation is, is made up of um, four key elements. So it's the, it's the leadership, it's the people, it's the processes and it's the product service, you know, what your organisation does. And it's important when we think about organisational resilience to understand that an organisation is made up of these different um, uh, elements. So what does the prepare, respond, adapt to incremental and sudden change uh, disruption mean? Well, that's the, the managing 
of in terms of Plan D Check Act, so the the framework that so many of our organisations are familiar with. You know, actually the, the if you like the 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 day to day activity um, and looking at the at the the future opportunities. Um, but it goes a step beyond that. It goes it goes much towards towards horizon scanning and looking at those um, challenges and opportunities that could be coming much further down the line. And they can come from a number of different areas. You know, this is so this is where your mechanisms around um, pestle will come in, you know, not just looking at, you know, what might change in terms of your own products for instance but actually what might happen in the wider um, environment or political situation that might have an impact and all of that comes together um, into survive and prosper and in simple terms that's will you exist in the future and of course underlying that is if we do exist what do we what do we look like? What does that mean for us? So that gives us a, a definition and a better understanding of what actually organisational resilience is. And as, as part of kind of progressing this um, development of uh, the understanding about organisational resilience, BSI undertook some um, research with Cranfield University um, and they came up with um, this tension quadrant. And it's something that I, I really like. Um, I think as a as a risk professional, it, it really spoke to me. Um, and, you know, hopefully uh, we've got a number of risk professionals, you know, may, you may be health and safety, you may be quality, you may be resilience, um, you know, you may be finance, whatever it is, we, you know, we are all dealing with risk. And the, the tension quadrant is this split between behaviours that are defensive, so about stopping bad things from happening, and those that are progressive, which is looking at making good things happen, as well as between the, you know, behaviours that are consistent and those which are flexible. So you, you end up with this, this quadrant. Um, and I think the, the thing to understand um, uh, with organisational resilience is that, you know, the organisation and the leadership need to manage the, the tensions between uh, each of those four elements and recognise that they, they will move and they will flux in different directions. You know, it's not going to be static. And as part of this and why it's related to risk is the risk perceptions and attitudes of the, the organisation, the leadership are really important here, because if you're too risk adverse, then actually um, you risk the long term survival of your organisation because you're stopping the ability for good things to happen. Um, because you're being defensive and you're more likely to be in the in this consistent or fixed kind of view um, and therefore you won't have the ability to be you know agile and innovative um, and adaptive to situations as, as they arise but on the other side if you're if you're too liberal with your risk tolerance then that's likely to impact your short-term survival so it is about finding this balance between each of these four elements to ensure that you you have um, and develop resilience for your organization and then in terms of starting to to look and break this down into the elements that make that up we've already talked about the organization is is made up of these four elements leadership people processes and, and products but within the the organization there are domains or what we call subject areas um kind of that overarch that so there's there's the operational aspect of, of the business so you know the if you like again coming back to kind of the the day-to-day -day and what goes on but we're also there'll be supply chain, um, you know, um, up and down the supply chain. So, you know, before your organisation and then after. And, you know, if we if we think about the the built environment sector, then those supply chains can be hugely complex. Um, and then there's a, a domain around information. Um, you know, there's a huge amount of information that organisations need and have um, uh, in order to generate the knowledge um, and, and, and in order to operate, um, uh, but also for, for the other elements in, in terms of particularly starting to look at those, those tensions um, and what the opportunities and risks might look like. 
Um, and then just to sort of finish the kind of the, the complete model of organizational resilience and, and the framework, under each of those um, four categories of, of the organization, there are 16 specific elements. Um, and you can see that, that under leadership, we've got actually leadership as an activity, but the vision and purpose, reputational risk, financial aspects and resource management. Under people, we've got culture, alignment, awareness, and training, stakeholder engagement, process governance and ability, uh, accountability, um, business continuity, supply chain, and our information knowledge management. And then under our product and service element, we've got you know horizon scanning. So you know what's going to change, what's going to come through, um, innovation, um, and adaptive capacity. So that ability to to change as things come along. But what's important to understand about this framework is it's, it's like all it's all frameworks. It's 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 broken down into these elements so that we can start to understand what an, you know resilient organization looks like and, and what elements um, contribute to that resilience um, but they're all interlinked um, it is it's much more like a, a spider's web um, you know and a really good example of that is is culture you know it sits under people but actually um, you know people is the leadership as well and the leadership drive culture. So that's a really simple example. So they are all interlinked, you know, they're, they're not um, individual components, but it's useful to think of them and understand them as these elements, because then it helps us understand where our strengths and weaknesses are in terms of each of those elements to help build resilience. So one of the things sort of that BSI does, having developed that framework about what organisational resilience is, is, is go out to organisations every year and, um, and and survey them to see where they are um, against those elements. Um, and it, so it's our organisational resilience index report. And our, our last one from 2019, which was completed before COVID-19 happened, um, had some really interesting insights actually. So you can see the, the, the one on the, on the screen in front of you that says, our findings reveal a clear organizational resilience perception gap, a significant mismatch between the elements business leader, leaders believe shape organizational resilience and the perceived performance of their organization. So this mismatch between what's what is believed to be needed for organizational resilience and actually how organizations think they're performing against those. And that was borne out in, in, in another element in, in terms of a finding that the ability of businesses to adapt to change had fallen for the first time since we've been doing the um, doing the survey. And I think that's really interesting, you know, even, even before we um, hit the major disruption that is is the pandemic actually there was a um a nervousness about the resilience of organizations and 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 concern that that resilience wasn't as robust as it could be or should be and i think the other thing that's that's worth bearing or sort of pulling out there's lots of brilliant nuggets um in there but the other one that i've i think it's it's worth um bringing out and particularly in the context of, of what we're talking about today, which is people and, and culture, is that, um, you know, um, strong leaders are needed to uh, create that um, adaptive capacity, um, you know, so that that ability to make to make the most of changing conditions. But what sits underneath that in terms of the skills of those leaders is really effective engagement with workers and clear direction um, of, of activity for, for the organisation. And those skills were starting to be seen as, as more valued, more, more highly valued than what we might think of, of, of sort of maybe more traditional business or leader skills in terms of innovation um, and business acumen. Um, so that's, that's worth bearing in mind because I think that gives us a good indication that actually organisational resilience is around people 
and that's our, our hint. So having had that really brief inter introduction to a kind of more structured approach to organisational resilience and, and, and what it looks like, um, we'd like to ask to ask you to, to revisit your, your school scores um, from the, the first poll. So Charlotte, um, I'll hand back to you for this second poll, please. Lovely. Thank you, Kate. So, yes, uh, having uh, heard the uh, the organisational resilience uh, structure, the approach um, and all of the, the different elements around that, uh, we would love to know, um, having listened to that, where would you rate your organisation um, now? Has anything changed? Um, are you uh, are you still happy with where you were or um, do you think things have shifted slightly? So one being not resilient and five being highly resilient um, and uh, looking forward to seeing if uh, the results and thank you again for people who are um, taking part in this. It's always great to hear what our audience are thinking and um, uh, and just to get your your insight. Uh, and we've been running this uh, poll um, throughout the world today, actually, I would say. Uh, started off in APAC this morning, um, then uh, we had another session mid-morning and now we have our afternoon session so um, we're trying to reach all corners of the earth uh, and uh, I'm hoping that uh, we'll we'll have some useful results so uh, perhaps we could ask um, for those actually before I ask for those results to be launched just to say we've got a couple of handouts um, on the side of your screen there so if you're interested in uh, the International Standard for Occupational Health, Safety and Wellbeing. Um, have a look at those. They are useful and uh, yes, please do download those. So let's have a look at those results. Um, and uh, yeah, interesting. So uh, we've seen um, slight difference. So now um, the top score is uh, people scoring themselves at number four. So just under five being highly resilient. And that score is 44%. Um, and then quite close behind that at number three is 42% of people who've answered today um, have, have placed themselves in the middle of the resilience kind of scoring options. Um, we still have nobody who says that they aren't resilient. So that's, that's good news. Um, and then the people, people who uh, perhaps were um, saying they were highly resilient, which I think was 10%, uh, has dropped slightly and gone down to 6%. So there has been a slight shift. Um, so thank you everybody for uh, for sharing those results. And I'll, I will now um, hand back to Kate for uh, the next session on culture. Lovely. Thank you, Charlotte. And again, thank you, everybody who's participated. That that that's really interesting. So we have had some some uh, organisations feel that they they are maybe less resilient, under understanding what a, a framework and the elements that make up resilience are. Um, but we we also saw an increase in terms of organisations uh, uh, becoming more resilient. So um, that you know it shifted in both both directions, which is really interesting. So thank you um, very much um, for participating. If you do want to find out more um, about the, the framework that I've talked about, do visit our website. We have a, a number of free resources there. You can um, There's a white paper. You can download the research paper that I mentioned, which is, is really interesting. Um, you can download the, uh, the index reports. Um, so there's lots of free information. So if you, if you want more, then do go and visit our website. So moving on to uh, look at um, culture and, and creating a positive culture um, within an organisation. So I think what you know a good place to to start is um, as we did a little bit with organisational resilience is well what does it mean? <laughs> Um, and it's you know it's interesting. It's, it's another one of these these terms that you know uh, has lots of different definitions. There was um, a very well known study. It's quite old now, um, back in the 1950s, and they did a, a you know looked at what how, the definitions of culture. And I can't remember the exact number, but it's, it's something like 192 different definitions of culture, um, which you know makes it challenging when we're trying to understand what it is. Um, and how we can improve it within our organizations. But 
actually it within all those definitions there were you know some themes that came through um and what came through was that it was around sort of codes and con codes of conduct and way of thinking um you know sort of a, a collective thinking and grouping uh, of ideas um to reach a, a prescribed sort of outcome uh, or output um and actually within the workplace it can re it can be simplified um as the way we do things around here um so you know all of the complexity we can simplify is simply you know the way we do things around here but in terms of looking at health and safety culture, the, the, the first definition was developed um, from the Advisory Committee on the Safety of Nuclear Installations after the Chernobyl disaster. Um, and they defined uh, safety culture uh, of an organisation being the product of individual and group values, attitudes, competencies and patterns of behaviour that determine the commitment to and the style and proficiency of an organization's health and safety program. So that's really important if we break down those elements. So we've got the product of individual and group values, attitudes, competencies, so that's important as well, and patterns of behavior. So, you know, not just values and attitudes and competencies, but also patterns of actual behavior that then determine the commitment and the style and proficiency of the organization's health and safety program. So there are a number of key elements that come through. And the key kind of thing to understand that that breaks down to is that culture is a, a combination of the person, individuals, the job so the work the activity the, you know that's going on um but then also the the organization and the way you know the the mission the values the beliefs um the actions of the organization as a as a whole and the other thing that's probably just worth mentioning is sometimes you know we we're talking about safety culture but sometimes the term safety climate is used and safety climate is much more focused if you like on on the person element um, and that's where it tends to sit whereas culture is really recognizing that is these other factors are important as well so why is culture important and, and why do we seek um, a, a maturity a progression um, in terms of the culture of an organization and this this graph gives us an indication of, of why that is so um sort of uh, towards the more immature what we we term in bsi emerging cultures what you see is a, an organization that has very high incident rates um, and their focus is just on complying with the law, minimum legal compliance. Um, and then they'll, they'll focus on the, the, the safety elements and particularly sort of, you know, um, mechanical safety. So making sure that there's guards on machines, for instance, um, and they won't be investing in in any or very little um, dedicated safety resource, you know, either in terms of people or training, for instance. Um, and they'll, you know, at even those limited activities will drive some improvements in terms of um, safety performance and incident rates will start to um, decrease, but then they'll, they'll, they'll plateau. Um, and the organization um, will, you know, will go through an, a number of different uh, scenarios you know they they may have a very serious accident um, and, and be prosecuted um, they may grow rapidly um, and realize that actually in order to manage health and safety effectively they, they need a more robust framework um, you know they they may be looking to become more competitive and bid for more work and actually you know the the clients that they they want to work for actually are demanding that they they have a more robust health and safety management system so about uh, sort of you know for various reasons and drivers an organization will look to uh, sort of move up into the next level of cultural maturity um, and we call that established and it's at this this stage that you know quite often a, a safety management system is introduced a framework to help drive consistency and efficiency around um, the management of health and safety there'll be 
um, some resourcing for safety. So either some dedicated health and safety advisors or managers or and or, you know, much more dedicated training um, in terms of upskilling people in terms of the competency of health and safety. A key kind of component of, of this stage of maturity is there's a lot of data you know, and everything's being reported on. Um, but it also it tends to be lagging, what we call lag, lagging, which are re, is reactive data. So, you know, the, the classic is the reporting on lost time incidents. So, you know, how, how many people are you hurting and how often? Um, and the focus will be on worker behaviour, you know, well, we've got a management system and we've we've got, um, you know, permits to work in place and we've got standard operating procedures. Why aren't the workers, you know, following those? So that tends to be the focus. And again, you know, e even, um, you know, they'll those improvements will will drive an improvement in terms of health and safety performance so again you'll get this you know notable notable reduction in terms of health and safety incidents but then there are plateau um, and organizations will quite often get frustrated with that plateauing because they're saying well hang on a minute you know we've got this health and safety management system we've invested some health and safety management resourcing um, you know we've got rules that people should be following um, you know, what, why aren't we getting this further improvement? And it's uh, generally around this time that the concept of culture starts to be reflected upon um, and the, the need to look at the organisation um, culture in more detail and the need to have a more robust and consistent leadership commitment to create um, a trust and shared value. And that basically becomes around a much more people-centered approach to the organization and again that will drive improvement but with all of these things it's not static you know you need to drive continual improvement otherwise it will simply plateau or worse still actually if you don't have that commitment and continual drive for improvement you can actually move the other way um, and, and start to um, go back and, and decrease in terms of your your health and safety performance so that's kind of explains the maturity but you know what it what comes with that so I think it's it's important to understand that you know at each of those stages there are some real challenges that organizations face I've touched it kind of at the beginning of the journey you, you know likely to see high injury and incident rates you know that's likely to be reflected in difficulties with with recruitment of, and retention of you know all, all staff um, you know there it can also have impacts in terms of um, quality and, and consistency um, because you know think if you think about it you know the, the quality of your product or your service is driven by the people who are delivering it you know and if they don't feel that they are being looked after if they are not happy and healthy then actually you know that will have an impact on productivity and quality and you'll see that in terms of morale and then you'll see that come through in terms of customer complaints um, and that can then have an impact on kind of the reputation of your business and the um, ability to secure new work so as we move into established um what tends to happen you know that is it the 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 improvements that are brought in by the resourcing and the introduction of safety management system do drive really great improvements in terms of injury and absence rates you know we see this you know really notable um improvement um or decline in the numbers and and frequency um but they do plateau um and i said you know that's often drives this frustration there can be uh, some challenges in terms of um, attracting and retaining key skills that the organization needs, um, particularly to you know, maybe drive growth and innovation. Um, and that can be a real challenge. You know, they'll, they'll quite often start to be looking at their supply chain because they recognize the importance of that, but there'll be challenges in terms of the, the effective management of that. And because the organization has implemented this framework of the safety management system and it becomes very focused on that and I said you know you have permits to work and safe operating procedures it becomes quite risk adverse um, and it comes quite rigid um, so it loses that ability to be um, agile 
and if you think back to the 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 tension quadrant then you know that's where that risk starts to come in in terms of the resilience of the organization because it's not agile enough um and you know that can have impacts in terms of attracting investment if it's not seen as innovative and then even, you know, organizations that are, are moving towards the top end of, of cultural maturity, you know, they still have challenges, which is why the continual improvement is so important. You know, we have, um, you know, increased uh, absence in term from stress and mental ill health, um, which can then lead to worker presenteeism. And if you're not um, familiar with the term presenteeism, then um, it's about um, individuals, workers who come to work, but they are not physically or mentally well. Um, but they come to work because, you know, maybe they're concerned about job security or it's, again, there's a there's a you've got to be seen culture. Um, and, you know, again, that can have an impact on productivity because you've got people who are in, um, but they're not working to to the best of their ability. You get a lot of complacency. Um, towards health and safety incidents and and and, and possible um, prosecution and litigation at, at this end of the scale, you know you, you've got organisations and you know they haven't had a serious accident for a very long time, you know and they're very much in the framework of yay, you know we've got it right, we've cracked it, it's brilliant, you know we're 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 absolutely right on in terms of our health and safety management. Um, but that's you know not necessarily the case. Um, so you get this complacency. And you get still talent and, and de development and, and plateau growth that comes with that. And, and again, because you haven't got that kind of talent coming through, you, you're often in a, in a situation where your organisation um, lacks in innovation. But of course, the flip side is that if you start to move along this maturity, there are opportunities for your organisation as you enhance your culture. So again, if we start in, on the emerging, then of course you get re reduced costs, operational costs, because your productivity and your quality are better. You're avoiding prosecution or litigation because of non-compliance. Um, you know, you start to see improvements in terms of efficiency, and you know that Im obviously improves your brand and then your ability to win work. If we move into established, um, you know, you because of the framework that you implement at this stage, you have a much more proactive risk management. Um, so it's much more about prevention rather than mitigation. And, you know, you'll, you'll get the enhancements that come with good um, brand reputation and growth and innovation that comes with that um, and your strength and corporate memory and learning because within that framework there is a you know an element in terms of learning from incidents and, and looking for improvements and then at the, at the top end um, you know you become much more effective in terms of that horizon scanning element. Um, you know, you, you're, you have a very strong brand and therefore competitive within the market, which means that then you're in a much better place um, in terms of getting um, investment, particularly investors that are looking for ethical investment, which is becoming more and more important. Um, and it facilitates continual improvement. But the, the key thing about going on this cultural journey and, and why um, progressing towards a positive culture is so important is that it starts to build resilience within your organisation. So in the established phase, the frameworks and the activities that are going on to improve your culture will start to develop organisational resilience. As you continue that journey, you will only enhance and increase organisational resilience. So it's really important component to um, resilience is improving the culture. And many of you um, who are health and safety professionals will be familiar with the Parker Hudson model, which is the traditional model um, of safety culture maturity. And just bear Excuse me, my uh, my voice was going, so I need a quick sip of water. Um, and the Parker Hudson model and, and a lot of cultural maturity models are focused on the cultural maturity of the of the or the of the maturity of the safety management system so it looks at um, where you are in maturity but just in the context of that middle piece um, that we talked about in terms of being established because it just looks at the management system um, but I'm I'm a fan of this model 
which is the safety culture maturity model, because this is focused on behaviours. And if you remember back to our definition of culture, it's about behaviours, about attitudes. Um, uh, and that's then, then obviously that reflects in terms of behaviours. So this comes from um, a piece of work that was done in the UK um, by the health and safety regulator and also a, a number of leading industry bodies. And, and actual um, industries, particularly from high hazard industries like oil and gas. But actually the, the model for behaviour maturity comes from the technology sector. They have a, a capability um, maturity model. Um, and again, that's focused on behaviour. So it's an adaptation of something that works very effectively for the technology industry about focusing on, on behaviours. And again, you can see that you can move through maturity in terms of, of those behaviours. Um, and, you know, as you as you reinforce and create those behaviours, you improve the, the culture of the organisation. So I'm just looking, checking time check. So one of the things that is important to understand about this, um, this uh, safety culture maturity model is there are 10 key elements that um, are make up the model. So sort of if we're thinking about breaking it down again. So the first and foremost is management commitment and visibility. And then you need trust, communication, participation. You need a good and understood balance between productivity and safety. You need to be a learning organisation. You need to have safety resources. You know, you need to have that there in order to deliver it. You need to have shared perceptions around safety. You need good industrial relations and job satisfaction. And you need the competency and the capability to make it all work. So that's where training comes in. So these are the key components. And each of those, again, is kind of broken down into activities that need to be carried out in terms of developing and going on that maturity model. And again, you know, this is a big subject to be covering in a webinar, so it's only a, a flavour of it. But one of the things that's that's worth noting is that the um, the technical committee of experts that develop the new international standard on occupational health and safety, one of the key things that they did was to take the opportunity in the development of that management system to embed culture and those elements that are needed for a good culture into the management system. So again, if you think back to the, the graph that I showed you in terms of that cultural maturity and, you know, in the middle organisations implement a management system, but they don't start thinking about culture until the, the last accelerating point, then actually what ISO 45 did was bringing culture much earlier into an organisation's thinking because it is so important in terms of, of driving improve, improvements. So it is embedded into 45001. And I'll just take you through and give you a flavour about how that happens against these 10 elements of the safety culture um, maturity model that I showed. So you can see the ones that are highlighted here. Well, they're reflected in the leadership and worker participation um, clauses and requirements in 45001 and there's a dedicated clause around communication because that's important as well you know so leadership and, and worker participation that's that's the management commitment and visibility and the participation of the workers um, and those two together so the the management commitments the participation and the trust three elements that you know that's what um, comes together to drive culture and then that needs to be if, then underpinned by communication um, and that will create your shared perceptions around safety um, and improve industrial relations and job satisfaction but also what I've done on the right there is just highlight those elements of our organizational resilience um, model that I shared right at the beginning um, because you start to see that there's a very clear relationship between culture and resilience. So we've got leadership, we've got vision and purpose, which is around shared perceptions and the trust and commitment, um, alignment, so again, shared perceptions, stakeholder engagement, so that's your participation of, of your workforce and um, um, you know, wider um, stakeholders like contractors that you may be engaging with, and of course, underpinned by the governance and accountability structure.
So productivity versus safety. Well, this is reflected in um, cause four, which is called context. Um, and that's really, you know, the, the, the mission and the vision and the values of the organisation, um, the purpose of the organisation. Um, and so that comes through very clearly. And again, if we look at the organisational resilience um, framework, we've got vision and purpose, you know, where's the, where's the risk appetite for the organisation, so reputational risk. And of course, you know, what are the financial aspects? What are the financial drivers and where the balance is? So you, is it a learning organisation? So in 45001, you've got management of change, which is really focused on learning from change. Um, you've got management review. So a key component of that is, is looking and learning from lessons. And of course, improvement is all about continual improvement. And you won't get that unless you learn from your mistakes or look at those opportunities for learning. And again, you know, it's reflected in the in the organisational resilience as well, um, resilience framework as well. Safety resourcing, you've got to have the resources there. So again, it's one of the specific requirements of leadership to make sure that they, they have the resourcing that is needed. Um, there are elements of resourcing within worker participation. There's a, actually a whole dedicated clause on, on resourcing. And again, the, the management review, there is a requirement within there to look and review to make sure that resourcing is appropriate. And again, within the organisational resilience framework, we've got resource management as a key factor. And of course, that's underpinned or uh, uh, impacted um, by financial aspects. And of course, our, our last area then is around um, training. So the comp competency and capability of, of individuals. Um, and again, that's reflected in, in leadership and, and worker participation um, within 45,001. And also, again, a dedicated clause of competency and within the organisational resilience framework finally um, we have a dedicated element looking at awareness and training. So that gives you a really kind of quick un, uh, introduction to uh, a framework for organisational resilience and for uh, a culture of an organisation and you can see that they are absolutely intertwined and related to each other. But I thought I'd just take the opportunity to um, put up a, a little beware of zero accident cultures. Um, and this is really common, um, particularly within the built environment and particularly within sort of more construction orientated organisations that they will have a, a zero accident target or culture associated with them. And the key thing with that is, you know, what about health and what about well-being? I know I've been talking about safety culture because that's kind of where the model comes from, but it does incorporate health and well-being. It is a much broader culture. But where organisations, you know, have a zero accident, you know, accident is about injury, I would argue, and it doesn't talk about health and it doesn't talk about broader well-being issues. The other thing is it becomes much more of a kind of a, a boardroom slogan rather than a, a way of acti actively engaging the workforce. You know, so, so, so zero accident. Well, you know, what does that actually mean for the people on the ground? You know, what does that look like? What difference does it make on their day to day activity that is going on? The other thing, and which is probably one of the most important things to understand with these sorts of um, ambitions, is that it doesn't uh, take into account that there are the phrase used on this slide is tribes, um, but there aren't there are different components, different bits of the business, and quite often what happens is they're quite competitive. So if you remember right at the start and the, sort of the, the the definitions of culture, it reflected that there are different groups, um, and they can those different groups can have subcultures if you like, um, and comp and competitiveness is is one of those. Um, and you know what you can tend to see with the with this sort of um, uh, ambition is that um, it will drive improvement for a little bit. But as as the numbers start to get lower, um, if one bit of the business has a has an accident, they'll hide it because they don't want to be seen to be the bit of the business that's, you know, had an incident or, you know, there's this competition with other bits of the business. So it actually drives um, health and safety underground and has a really negative impact on people. 
And of course, relatedly, it's, it's virtually impossible to achieve. Of course, it is absolutely morally the right thing to do to ensure that, the, you know, that people who come to work at the beginning of each day, that they go home um, as fit and, and as healthy as, as they did when they started. Absolutely the right thing to do. But it, you know, it is practically impossible. And, you know, there are real challenges with that. And, and the key thing in terms of understanding that impossibility is, of course, as soon as there is an incident, it completely undoes all the good work that may have been up to that point. Um, and, you know, it's really um, disengaging for people. You know, you see a lot of, on, on construction sites, you know, two, 264 days since our since our last accident. You know, well, if the accident happens on the 265th day, it can be really de demotivating for everybody involved. So it is important to understand that context. And it does become this kind of um, outcome uh, as opposed to motivating vision for the organisation. So again, um, it's if we think back to that culture and that need for a shared perception, um, it, it doesn't become that. You know, it's something something that's created by by the board or senior or, uh, senior people within the organisation, and it doesn't engage and and doesn't resonate with workers. So it's just worth reflecting on that when we're when we're talking about culture. So before we we get towards the end and, and have some time for questions, I just wanted to um, flag up that in terms of the, the 10 elements that were created with the original safety culture maturity model that I've introduced you today, um, uh, uh, I have added these two elements into BSI's um, model of cultural maturity. So that it starts with those 10 elements, but it adds two additional ones. So it adds um, very clearly and explicitly health and well-being, um, but then also monitoring and reporting, because those two elements are uh, as important to the overall culture of the organization. So if we just look at the the, the health and safe health, safety and well-being elements, you know, in emerging, the focus is on safety and there'll be very little focus on on health, um, physical, mental or cognitive. In established, we do get that focus on on physical health. So, you know, a focus on on dust or dermatitis or musculoskeletal disorders, for instance. Um, but there'll be very little focus on on mental health. But in accelerating, you get that move to make sure that all of those elements are incorporated into the health and safety culture of the organization. And so, you know, physical, mental and cognitive health and safety is proactively managed. So that just gives you kind of little flavor. Um, but if you want to explore those more, then you have an opportunity to in due course. And I will let Charlotte explain what that is. Thank you, Kate. Yes, just to say uh, before we come to our Q&A session, um, I'd like to share with those of you who might not be aware about this, because this is coming down the line, um, that Kate has played a, a real role in sharing more of her insight with us, together with some other industry experts, um, and contributed to a brand new report that you can see on the screen there called The New World of Construction. Um, it explores a number of, of key topics that uh, are, you know, prominent and pertinent for people today. Um, and we also are offering people the chance to take part in a, um, a maturity quiz so you can see um, exactly where your organisation is. We'll, uh, Kate has designed this especially for um, those who work in construction and uh, lots of good questions. So on the back of that, you would then find, uh, a, a, get an indication of how mature your health, safety and well-being um, situation is in your organisation. So please have a look out for that. Um, and if you would like a copy, then um, that is an option for you. So I think we're now going to come into our Q&A session. So uh, for, for Kate, we do have a few questions that have come in. Um, and one that uh, has come in, which I think just seems to me like a logical place to start, really, because it is about starting, um, is um, in order to develop a, a positive culture, where should you start? <laughs> yeah, that's that, that's a that's a great question. Um, the 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 simple answer is it starts at the top. 
um, you've got to have management commitment to to go on this journey in terms of improving culture. Um, so you've got to have the, the commitment from the top. But the, the other element is actually then the worker engagement, um, because it's it's those two elements together that then create trust. And if you if you recall back to the model that they are the first three components, uh, well, actually communications in there as well, but they are the first real, really important steps in terms of creating a culture. So, yeah, absolutely. It starts at the top, but you need to get good and early engagement with your with your workforce and, and broad Broader stakeholders, you know, don't don't forget, particularly contractors, where we're we're thinking about some of the complexities of, of um, the built environment. You need that engagement to 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 start to move towards that that trust. Absolutely, and and thinking again about um, our audience today, um, a, a, another question which could be a bit of a challenging one is how do you measure? a positive culture. So any, any uh, thoughts on that for uh, for our guests mm. today? Yeah, it's 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 not super straightforward. Um there are, you know, you, you you can do some early benchmarking, you know, the 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 quiz that you can take part um uh when it's launched shortly is a is a really simplistic version um of a, a benchmarking tool in terms of asking some questions and having some, a score associated with that and and then giving you a sort of a, a, a an out, a outcome in terms of what that means for your maturity. You obviously get much more complex versions of those questionnaires. Um, you know, and they drill down into much more detail, you know, so that sort of survey um, approach. But the, the thing to bear in mind with, with all of those is that they they kind of give you a, an indication, which is a great place to start, because it, as we've seen, it's it's a complex area to start to understand. And it, it gives you an identification. Uh, an idea of what we might call hotspots, so areas where you need to look at in more detail. So you might find actually that actually there's a hotspot around trust. There seems to be an issue there, or actually there's a, a competency area issue, training issue. So it gives you somewhere to start in terms of looking at in more detail. But that next step is really important: the detail. So you really need to, to go to the next level, which is start to have um, structured focus groups or interviews to start to unpick what that is. Because, you know, if we think about something like trust, a, a questionnaire type approach might identify that you have an issue with trust, but what does that actually mean? Where is the problem? You know, um, and you need to be able to unpick that and you can only do that through, as I say, focus groups and, and questionnaires. So, you know, if you really want to understand culture, then that's the, that the journey that you need to go on. Absolutely, so it's quantitative but also very important qualitative as well, Absolutely. getting getting that anecdotal face-to-face -face, um, uh, feedback. Mm, very much so. Um, yeah, and uh, also um, again thinking about who we have today, uh, we have a question in on um, joint ventures. Uh, which obviously is a is a big thing um, for many people. Uh, so if you're working collaboratively on a joint venture, then um, does that throw up any any other areas that needs considering around uh, you know a positive culture or any any thoughts on how that could be tackled? Yeah, you're, you're you're right. I mean, um, you know, joint joint ventures can be hugely hugely complex. But that I mean, they the easiest way to think about it is that you know it's, it's they are for for the time frame that they are delivering, they become an organisation in themselves, and and that's the best way to to think about it. So you know, your your workers are all of your stakeholders who are involved. So all of the different um, you know it's from the from the designer and principal contractor down through all, all, all the tiers of contractors they are all your workers they are all the stakeholders so you need to approach it in the in the same way as that framework of, of behaviors the cultural maturity model that I shared earlier um, you know you need to have the communication there you need to understand what the shared perceptions are in terms of health and safety you need to make sure that the competency is there you need to have the leadership engagement and commitment from all of the leaders from all of those organizations and come together so the the approach 
is the same. It's just, you know, there is an ad added le level of complexity, but it can be made to work. And I think that's one of the things I think a lot of a lot of these big sort of and particularly sort of in infrastructure type projects. But, you know, um, it can seem really daunting um, because you've got this complexity and not everybody's involved all of the time. You have people come in and people, um, you know, go out at different phases of, of the project. Um, but there's actually a really good case study um, on, on this, if you're not familiar with it. Um, and that's the uh, the British Olympic Park that was built um, a few years ago. Um, there was a, a real um, drive to to make it the, the healthiest and the safest um, project that had ever been run in the in the UK um, and they you know they created a lot of case studies and a lot of information and, and so there's really good um, information on the the health and safety executive website if you want to see what that looks like because it absolutely can be done and it can be done phenomenally well. Yeah it's a great example there thank you and uh, we've got a question in from Marina um, which is obviously around collaboration. Marina says, how does this, how can this link into ISO 44001 behaviours? So for those wow. who aren't familiar, um, that's the, uh, the International Standard for um, Collaborative uh, Relationships. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. I have to, I have to say I'm I'm a I'm a really big fan of of, of that standard um, because you know particularly when we're thinking about the, the, those complex Pro, um, projects, then again, having a structure and a framework about how you develop those relationships, what that looks like, and um, becomes really important. Um, and and the, and and, and um, uh, forty four thousand and one gives you that framework. But a key component, again, that comes with following that framework is it's about developing really effective communication making sure that everybody has a shared perception about what the outcome of that of that partnership looks like that there's a way of tackling any tension so that kind of if you think about it that's kind of like the industrial relations element of the, the cultural maturity that I talked about so it absolutely becomes you know part and parcel and you know if, if you're not familiar with it then um, as I say I'm I'm a big fan particularly for the for those complex projects because it does give you that structure to help you understand those and un underpin them to make sure that there is this shared perception and the trust is there for all the partners. Absolutely. And uh, we've seen a lot of people who work in con construction who are absolutely embracing um, that standard because of, again, I suppose, joint ventures and, uh, you know, where you're bringing people together to uh, to try and deliver a, a shared goal, whatever that might be. So, yes, a really great question in there. Um, we have also had a question in um, around um, how long it does it take to embed cultural change? Um, <laughs> which is probably a tough one but uh, any uh, any ideas around that yeah. one I mean it's it it, it is um, you know I can't give you a definitive answer because everybody's on a different journey but I think one of the key things to un understand is that actually to to embed a a change in culture um, you you're looking at um, a minimum of three years and, and generally um, uh, five years before you actually see that cultural shift and that cultural change. Um, so, you know, it's not something that happens overnight. And, and the key point is, and I, I touched on this briefly um, earlier on in the presentation, is then you need to maintain that commitment and that drive for continual improvement because it's it's not a um it's not a one hit wonder it's it you know um it's not you've done it and that's it um you know you need to continue to work at it and if you don't have that commitment then as i've mentioned you know you can go back down the other way um towards that that poor and weaker culture Perfect. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, one last question in from Jerome, which I think I know we've run over, but I think it's this could be helpful for everybody who's also still with us um, is how shall I measure my resilience progress? 
so obviously we've talked about organisational resilience and we do have um, solutions which will help people do that. So um, that, uh, that could be something that uh, we could follow up with you on directly, Jerome. But uh, any, any thoughts on that, Kate? No, I mean you, you've covered it. We, you know, you you saw the the framework that um, has been developed for organisational resilience, and in exactly the same way that we would for culture, um, we can we can break that down into the components. So we we start with a with a kind of as, as as Charlotte said, the quantitative element. So we we can ask some 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 questions, do some surveys, some questionnaires to kind of give us a, a quantitative score and identify where there may be particular challenges, and then we can deep dive into those challenges through um, interviews and focus groups to, to start to unpick them um, and make sure that you're moving uh, in the right direction in terms of your resilience. Fantastic and I think as we have now um, we've got to the end of our questions so thank you for for everyone if we haven't answered them all I can see a couple more um, we will come back to you after after today's session so uh, I think um, we will close that poll obviously now um, and go on to the uh, the final slide so just um, to say that uh, today's webinar is actually part of a series um, that uh, that Kate and I have been working on. Great to have uh, Kate's insight on some other future topics. These are going to be running later in the year, so please do join us for these. Um, and again, we're going to be running them at different times to support different time zones. So we appreciate, you know, we're reaching people all over the world. So um, just to say. We've reached the end of today's session. Um, thank you, Kate, for, for presenting. Really enjoyed listening to everything you've had to say about the relationship between a positive culture and building resilience and how closely aligned these are. Um, and I'd like to thank our audience. Thank you very much for, for taking part in our polls um, and for joining us. And we hope that you found some, some solid steps to, uh, to consider it around culture and to share with others in your organisation as you move forward. So thank you very much to everybody. Thank you.